morning. This is Richard Chang with the Sativa segment. Um, welcome to episode seven. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to say that this episode is fueled by Dads at Peace. Dads at Peace is a men's resource center based in Dallas, Texas. Um, if you would like to find out more about it, go ahead and look it up on Facebook, Dads at Peace, and you can find out more information about its meetings and its events. Um, today, we have um, a guest in the industrial hemp industry. His name is Colt Cohen uh, of uh, Logics, and he's the CEO there. But really, this individual uh, who I've known for a while, he, uh, he, he also is involved with a number of other ventures, which we'll discuss. Yeah. Welcome. Hey, good to see you again, man. It's been it, a while. It's been a while. Yeah. What was that? 2015? 2015. So yeah. we met each other, and then shortly after that, you came to uh, the law firm I was with. Yeah. We had a big um, oil and gas event, which you were in the oil and gas. Yeah, yeah. It was at the ballpark. The ballpark, yeah. I remember yeah. you guys had a nice little suite there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a great event. It was a great firm. That firm is no longer around, but um, so I guess we've known each other for a while. Yeah, man. I think you were doing your MBA at the time, right? I was. Yeah. And you suggested... Um, SMU, but I didn't have the coin for it. <laughs> well, I mean, who does, right? I mean, at the end of the day. But yeah. uh, where, where did you end up doing your MBA at? At University of Memphis. How yeah. was it? No, it was a, it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was, it took me four and a half years, but I was taking one class at a time. Yeah. Working full time, practicing law full time, and it was. Um, I mean, I learned a lot. Did you keep in touch with anyone from the program? Yeah, actually, one of my clients. Uh -huh. And one of my really good friends is actually here in town. There's actually two or three um, classmates. Yeah. That program. Yeah. I, I honestly, uh, having done the MBA program now, like I think that the, the, I don't want to say the only, but I'd say the primary value really at the end of the day is that is the network the, the, the network that you build, right? I mean, I've heard I, that from everybody. Before. I'm really like when, when people are super proud of their MBA, I kind of like. Yeah, I, it, there were two or three classes that were weird. that were pretty tough, right? Like like yeah. finance was tough, corporate finance was tough, uh, yeah. econ econ was tough, um, global operations was eh, you know stats was, eh, but I think you're right. I mean, yeah. I think value is like the people you meet. In. Yeah, like I think it's one of those things where hey, you know what? I can appreciate that you went above and beyond, and um, and you know, and went and challenged yourself, and I think right. that's respectable and stuff like that. You know, SMU was great. It's it's a highly regarded school and all those things. And I think the classes were interesting. And we had a lot of good adjunct professors who came in from that right. real world. And and it was great. And 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 uh, some of my closest friends today are guys that I met in the MBA program. Yeah. And yeah. so I can, I'm very thankful for that. And and I went to M my MBA because I had moved to Dallas the I think just the year prior. Okay. And really, just didn't have a network. Didn't have friends. I had I had lost my ass in the uh, in in the uh, housing market in, okay. in Houston. Yeah. And so when I lost everything, that one of the first times I lost everything, uh, uh, I just packed up my truck and moved to Dallas. And now, where are you from? I'm originally from Arlington. Okay. But you know, in Arlington, we don't really consider that Dallas because is it more Fort Worth? Or is it no, it was in between. It's it, it, it's it's its own thing, right? Okay. So Arlington is a school is a town like at the time that I was there, we had five five A high schools. Lamar, Martin, yeah, Arlington High, High, Bowie, yeah, yeah, Sam. So are you from Arlington? No, no, no I just I, I I've I've had a lot of friends in okay. Arlington and uh I know Arlington is kind of its own little identity. Well, right? yeah, because for us 
Fort Worth was kind of Western and Dallas is where people with money lived, right? Sure, sure. So like we never went. <laughs> it was just like we were living in like, you know, basically South Central Arlington, you know, and, uh, you know, it was a little rough. You know, there may have been metal detectors to get into my junior high sometimes, but. Uh, but it gave you character. Yeah. You know what? I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's an, it's an interesting concept because I, I think about like, you know, when I have kids, I'm like, how do I, you know, say, say everything works out and we're super successful and all those things. Like, how do you, how do you raise your children where like, they don't feel like they have money? Right. Cause I think that's hard. Right. I think it's, it's super hard. And I, I don't want to tangent too much, yeah, right. but you know, the old saying hard times create soft men. Soft men. No, no, hard times create hard, strong, so, men. strong uh, Hard times create hard men or strong, strong men. men. Strong men create soft times. Yeah. Soft times create soft men. Yeah. Soft men create hard times. Yeah, exactly. So. No, it, it's absolutely true, and I, and I see it. Um, and it was interesting having gone to SMU and meeting a lot of those. Being, I, I basically kind of adopted into that whole network and everything like that, and especially being in oil and gas as well. Like, you kind of get around some folks who are generational. In their, in their dollars, and I don't want to call it all wealth because they weren't all generation, generationally wealthy, uh, but definitely comfortable, very comfortable. And it was interesting meeting all those folks and then getting introduced to contacts that they had and being mm -hmm. able to monetize those relationships and those introductions where the person that introduced me should have and could have done the same thing, but not the perspective of need was different, right? So... Uh, or need to make something happen. Right. Now, is it really your MBA contacts or your Arlington contacts that kind of led you into getting into cannabis? Oh, into, into, well, industrial materials. Really. Industrial materials. Right. Uh, sorry. Um, but you were, I mean, you, when I met you, you were in oil and gas. Right. But then one day we talked. And I'm like, yeah. Why, why, why is he involved with a company called Imperial Seedling? Yeah, yeah. And so that was really the switch for me uh -huh. because I always identified you with oil and gas. Yeah. So well, tell, me, was... tell me about that. How'd you get into that? So, you know, in oil and gas, so I was at the time that we spoke, um, I believe that that was with Entoro Capital. So um, I was a co-founder in Entoro Capital and, and we were, you know, out there, you know, project funding oil and gas projects. Okay. And, um, and so deals were coming across the desk all the time. And a deal came across, and, and it was interesting because in oil and gas at that time, you were hearing some of the engineers in oil and gas talk about um, biofuels, alternative fuel sources, and, and because you have to be looking at those things, right? Right. In the industry and what's coming around. And although at the time, no one really took it seriously because you, like, people were basically like going into restaurants and getting their leftover oil and like trying to make that biodiesel out <laughs> okay. of it and stuff like that. So no one really took it seriously. But anyway, um, I had a deal come across my desk that was, that was in the um, cannabis hemp world. And um, I, it obviously wasn't oil and gas. And so I, kind of started going toward that direction and the people involved were some big names and um and so i decided you know to because I, I looked at oil and gas in the direction it was going and i think oil and gas industry is 
amazing. I think it's amazing what the oil and gas oil and gas industry has done. Um, I think even though we've moved, I've personally moved on into a bio based realm, right? Right. Non fossil fuel. Like I think it's super important to tip the hat, you know, to the shoulders of giants that we stand on, and say, hey, oil and gas, you got us to where we're at now. So you, what I'm hearing is that it sounds like there's a lot of crossover, or that at least there's some crossover between the I skill set that you d developed in the oil and gas industry and the, the bio industrial materials. Industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I, I kind of see it as a, as a, as a uh, relay race, right? Like, you know, everyone had their section in time and okay. oil and gas, you know, they came out and they did their thing and, and like they really, without oil and gas, everything that we look at, everything like whether it be the, the gasoline we put in the car, the plastic container we use, all these other things, the, the makeup, there, it's, it's, it's been in, in everything and look there's all these you know conspiracies and theories about how they got into those industries but nonetheless right they have provided a lot of value and so i right. think that their time has come and and we we can't turn oil and gas off today we can't like you know elon musk will tell you like do not turn off oil and gas like there's not enough electricity to power these cars right sure. so so anyway so i got into Actually, what ended up happening is before Imperial Seedlings, we got into Imperial Seedlings was the result of uh, farming. So first, we got into uh, industrial hemp farming. Okay. And so we farmed about we ended up farming about 500 acres of hemp in Nevada. And wow. so, which at the time was one of the largest farms nationwide, and definitely in in, in the state of Nevada. I think it was the largest farm in Nevada. But why did you pick Nevada, though, of all states? Well, so we were growing at the time floral hemp. Okay. So while my my focus, well, while my interests lied in industrial materials, um, there was no way that the world was ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's been talking about hemp and fiber and and all these other things. And initially, like when I was hearing about it, like. I heard a biofuel, I heard rope, I heard like things that like, sure. biofuel was super interesting to me, but like rope and some of these other textiles were less at the time. And, and so, but we picked, but in floral hemp, there's a lot of risks to mitigate for. Like what? Like, like first of all, humidity and bugs are huge issues. Sure. Um, because you can look at the flowers of, of hemp, you know, in, in the layman's terms, you know, you call them buds, right? So the buds of the flower or the buds of the plant um, are just like any fruit of any plant, right? Super interesting to bugs. And then the way that the flower is, is structured, so it's, it's an upward trending bract structure, right? And so the way you basically have V's going up and within those V's and it's a tight little space, you get moisture. And then when you get moisture in there, and it can't really escape because it's tight, it starts to mold, right? And so we picked Nevada because of a couple things. A, it's dry. It's dry, <laughs> right? Super dry. Um, and at the time, we were, my business partner, um, Jeffrey, he was, he had a long stint in the cannabis industry. Okay. Um, and, and honestly, 
you know, he was kind of the reason why I had the confidence to go forward and do the fun. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because coming from the oil yeah. and gas industry, I mean, you yeah. had to have some reticence about getting into cannabis because either A, because of the traditional stigma that surrounds it, at, especially at the time, mm-hmm. right? this is a couple years back. Um, but if nothing else, it's an industry that you were not entirely familiar with. Right, but for your business partner, from what it sounds like, Jeffrey. Yeah. So tell me about like any type of concerns or any challenges for you personally on when, when you got into it. Yeah. So like you said, right, the big stigma at the time, you know, and um, you know, and and getting into cannabis really wasn't necessarily the end game. Um, you know, like I said, industrial materials, uh, alternative energy sources, all that stuff was super interesting to me, and. But when it caught my eye, like I said, it wasn't ready. So instead, you start looking at the family of plants, right? So the cannabaceae genus of plants. So the cannabaceae genus of plants is hemp, cannabis, hops, by the way, mm-hmm. and randomly tumbleweed. But other, there's a couple really, others. yeah, I didn't know that. I know tumbleweed. Know. Yeah, it's kind of huh. weird, right? So um, anyway, so we, I, I met some guys in I, the the project that I left the oil and gas business okay. for failed miserably actually um after about a year and so i got into basically management consulting and i ended up getting the management consulting in the cannabis industry first because the hemp industry hadn't really come to light yet because farmville 2018 hadn't happened yet yeah and so yeah because that didn't happen until december of 2018 right yeah about i mean i don't i don't know if it was december but i know it's 2018 yeah, it was December 20th of 2018. Okay. Yeah, nice. So um, so then in, in that within that management consulting, I met Jeffrey. Ah, okay. And I I was tell you know, we were talking about and he was running a cannabis company in uh, Washington at the time. Okay. And I was talking to him about my interest uh, in the industrial hemp side and I was helping them out with some uh, project funding and, and recapitalization of the company and stuff like that, having come from the capital markets world. Mm-hmm. And so um, I asked him, I said, hey, what are your, what's your, uh, what are your thoughts? What, what's the opportunity right now? And he said, uh, oh, I think it's CBD. And I was like, cool, what's CBD? So <laughs> um, anyway, so and he kind of described it to me. And he was like, so basically it's kind of a combination of the two worlds, right? My, my interest in the industrial material side and cannabis, so you're dealing with a non-psychoactive cannabinoid, and which was CBD at the time. And yeah. So that's how we got into it. And so we fundraised and, you know, launched and we, you know, grew all this material. And um, I thought, I, like, in the process, I forgot some, one very important concept, that's selling right. the end product, right? Like... <laughs> yeah, you grew it, but you know, yeah. now you have to have you have to do something with the biomass, right? Yeah, exactly. So what are you what are you gonna do with the, after you grow it? Right. Yeah. So um, that was a problem for us, and it was so hot, and everyone's talking about it. Like, as a person who has run sales organizations in multiple industries, yeah. it's a bit embarrassing that I really didn't uh, think about the end first and work backwards, but. It's what happened. Experience. It's what happened. And so anyway, and then Imperial Seedlings, and, and, I'll, and I'll like come back to that concept in a moment, but Imperial Seedlings was essentially um, 
solving for a small problem we had in farming. So when we were trying to get started, we only had X number of dollars, right? And to cover 500 acres at 2,500, 3,000 plants an acre, that's a lot of plants. Yeah. And at the time, you know, I had learned so much from Jeffrey because he's a fourth generation farmer um, growing, you know, tree fruits, wine grapes, uh, hops, and a number of other items through his family. And um, I had learned a ton of things. And one of the things that I learned was that seedlings are usually about 10 cents, right? Sometimes five, depending on where you're at. Um, they were seven to ten dollars in the hemp out in the open market. In, in, uh, well, in the hemp industry, right? I mean, yeah. meaning out in the open market. Meaning, yeah. if you were selling seedlings, you can sell it between seven to ten dollars per seedling. Yeah, at least that's what they were trying to charge, right? And they weren't coming off of it. And so, like for us, what we ended up, our solution was we ended up farming five hundred acres, and a portion of that was a dairy farm. And so it's got these long strips of concrete and we basically, we called it the green mile because we basically just put seedlings all the way down this concrete strip. <laughs> it's where all the cows would come and feed, yeah. right? Yeah. And we just had, it was, it was really kind of a cool site and we took an aerial view, but uh, no, we, uh, so we ended up launching Imperial Seedlings to solve that problem, right? It was just a quick little thing and like a quick little thing turned into like kind of a decent sized business for us. We sold three and a half million seedlings across the United States uh, in, oh, wow. in 2020. And so, um, you know, it was, it, it was definitely a very good business. Were you able to charge the seven to nine, seven to $10 oh, no. per Our per whole seedling? concept was dollar starts. Really? Yeah. So you're, you're depending more on volume on, on, on your seedlings versus the high, versus the high charge per seedling. Yeah. Model. And being farmer focused. Right. Yeah. So that was our big thing was like, it's, I mean, you know, in some ways, it was kind of an altruistic approach to the, the hemp industry. Yeah. If you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of was. And, you know, we also wanted to make sure that we were just, we were there for the farmer. Like everyone else was there to try to take advantage of the farmer. And, sure. it, and it happens in every industry. Farmer gets, you know, squeezed. Right. Um, and, you know, this is a passion that I have now. And I, again, I thank Jeffrey for that, you know, because that's where that came from and while when because he explained to me how these things work and um so anyway so yeah so then what we ended up doing is because we had farmed so much acreage and learned so many lessons in that you know because we initially took basically jeffrey's background in cannabis because he'd been growing cannabis since the legal market in washington state 97 okay. right in 1997 you could deliver cannabis um and so, and I think that's what, uh, I think that's how that story goes. But anyway, and his story is super interesting, you know, terminally ill, 15, cannabis kind of saved his life, like, oh, actually, no and was prescribed unofficially by his doctor. His doctor- As wrote, early as 97? Yeah, his doctor um, actually literally wrote his mom a script. That's oh, how no, I- A script, wrote, gave him a, uh, a contact. Okay. That's actually how I fell into the cannabis industry back in 13, is yeah. my first client was- question was how do i you know what are the physician liabilities prescribing versus recommending medical mm -hmm. medical cannabis right so it's interesting that he was actually involved with it from what it sounds like around 15 that's a long time ago yeah yeah when yeah when he was 15 you know because he's 43 44 now yeah but uh no he had been given a terminal diagnosis like you're going to die and so 
like his his doctor gave his mom a contact and was like, hey, go get this cannabis. He's gonna need it because there's a experimental surgery that we can do. And um, and but he, he doesn't have the weight he needs right now. He's not eating and he's really sick and and so the doctors would wheel him down to the showers which were under construction at the time at the hospital because his mom went and got the cannabis and brought it back and super interesting story and he was able to uh, gain enough weight start eating again mm-hmm. got healthy enough to have the surgery and was like you know it was it was literally a one out of 100 type of experimental uh surgery in terms yeah, of one sounds, out of 100 success rate i mean that you know the the stigmatized route at the time especially mm-hmm. more or less saved his life so, yeah. yeah yeah so um obviously so he's he immediately gained a passion for it and um, he also grew up in an area where hops were very prominent. So Washington State is one of the epicenters of hops production globally. Okay. But with hops and cannabis being in the same genus of plants, family of plants, then he would actually graft cannabis onto like hop spines growing up and stuff like that. So wow, you can do that. Yeah, because they're the same family, right? Yeah. Same genetics. Yeah, so, think about that. Yeah, it's super oh. it's anyway, fun facts. But anyway, so that's kind of how we got into growing that and then and then we basically, uh, and Jeffrey had done a ton of uh, studying of the applicable crossovers of infant programs, fertilizers, pet, you know, pest management programs, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and cannabis with some fertile, like larger scale fertilizer companies. Um, and he, they were actually in hops. And so he was studying the applicable crossovers in those programs, right? Mm-hmm. Those tried and true and proven concepts. But anyway, so that's how we were able to scale that. Um, and but, but you spun off and did other things too for uh, after Imperial Seedling, right? Yeah, Imperial Seedlings was just kind of a like we just saw a problem, we decided to solve it, right? Okay. And then so we did that, sold a bunch of seedlings, um, and then we launched Elevated Distributing, and that was the that was still with Jeffrey. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So he stayed with you on the distribution side too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, Tell me about we're Elevated. still partners today. So okay. Yeah. So we got into, we, we launched Elevated Distributing as a concept of um, trying to, as a go-to-market strategy for trying to connect or bring the two ends together of farmers and the market because okay. there was no market. And when you look at anything else, like any other crop, there's an established market, established silk road, if you will, of. Mm-hmm. Uh, taking things to market and whether that's buying it off the stock or buying it at the farm or a central marketplace, you know, for the farmers to all bring their products that is, that exists in every other crop. It didn't exist in him and really doesn't still to this day. And so we decided we were going to basically go semi create that and basically, and, and take it to market. And, um, we, we had some success in that. But um, we quickly, well, okay. So while we were doing it elevated, I was still paying, we were still paying attention very much to the um, industrial side, right? Uh, Of fiber and cellulose, which is where we wanted to be. And um, in 2020, August, 2020, the U.S. launched the the U.S. Plastics Pact, uh, 2025 U.S. Plastics Pact, which basically has three primary pillars 
And the one that was most interesting to us was the one that said that by 2025, 30% of all plastics will be bio-based. And so... Why did they define what... And I'm not familiar with that particular mandate, but did they define what bio, uh, bio-based means? Right, non-synthetic, right? Okay, so, so you couldn't actually synthetically manufacture the, the, the plastic, right. like how tr- plastic is traditionally manufactured. Right, okay. right. That's exactly right. So, um, so it would be all bio-based. And then there's two other pillars, and one's about recycling and... Uh, being compostable and stuff like that. but And then what's interesting is, so that was launched by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in tandem with the U.S. And, but the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has launched plastics packs, similar plastics packs, across 10 different countries and regions. Um, so you've got a Canadian plastic pack. You've got a European plastic pack. you got Australian. Even Kenya's got a plastics pack. And so that was super interesting and really caught our attention and that was during the time of imperial seedlings and then we and then in i want to say april of 21 um while we were doing elevated that's whenever the sec was starting to release the proposals for the new regulation around esg mm-hmm. and so because while we had this interest in these bio-based industrial materials what mattered was why now, right? There was not a why now. There's, there was no compelling event. But with ESG, you answer that question part of it. ESG in tandem with, you know, consumer development and basically they're, what they care about, right? Yeah. So consumers are starting to get to a point where they're willing to pay an extra dollar for their toilet right. paper or this or that. And, um, and so, like, it's more consumers are more conscious than they used to be. Um, but anyway, so basically, long story short, you know, it's, oh, so the SEC and the ESG thing, why that was interesting is because back in 2018-ish, you started having like all these, um, and within the capital markets uh, and fund managers across the world, you had about $300 trillion between 18 and 21, 22. You had about $300 trillion of assets under management basically um, signify or basically uh, uh, dedicate to sustainability. And because, that, because they, were, they were signing up and signing petitions of, of a dedication to uh, sustainability, you had all these major pubcos and corporations across the world say, hey, we're sustainable or we're going to be. And so companies, and I won't drop any names here, but all these major Fortune 500s are going, hey, we're going to reduce our uh, forest fiber uh, consumption by 50% by 2025. Or we're going to reduce our uh, petrochemical plastic utilization by 50% by 2025. Super aggressive timelines. And by doing that, they are essentially attracting those assets, those assets under that AUM, those assets under management, those, those capital markets at $300 trillion that says we're going to buy stocks of companies that are being sustainable. Right. And so, and of course, like, you know, it's unknown. Like, I don't know if they also did it because that drives consumer behavior. I don't know how much consumers are paying attention to sustainability claims of companies. 
but um, you know, investors sure are. Do you think ESG is going going to? Uh, I guess the the force and momentum of ESG is going to continue, where it obviously has a driving force on consumerism, mm-hmm. how uh, how companies are are formulated, the people that you bring on to to, to the companies. It, do you see that as being sustainable over the next say ten years? As a major driving force, as it is today, or is it going to be? Is it going to be bigger, in your opinion? So, in my opinion, I think that the the cat's kind of out of the bag on this one. The genie's out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's way too much momentum at this point, and it's not just ESG. To be clear, right? Yeah. ESG is the regulatory side. So, basically, what the what the SEC did, what the European Commission did is they came out and said, hey, look, you're making these claims of sustainability. Mm-hmm. You're driving investor behavior. Mm-hmm. So because you're making claims that drive investor behavior, that needs to be regulated. Mm-hmm. And there's you've got no accountability, which is where the whole concept of greenwashing came from. Um, and by the way, I'll quickly interject that, like, we ended up launching Cellulogics, like, right out of elevated distributing to go, we just dropped everything we were doing. We still run Imperial Seedlings like two months out of the year and we, we still do a little bit in Elevated, but... Is is Elevated, um, does it serve... I mean, the more I'm learning about Elevated and what you guys do on Elevated, it sounds like to me, it's almost like a biomass brokerage firm to where you you, you aggregate biomass and then you put it out into open market. That's essentially what it was. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Elevated today doesn't really do much because we basically... Elevated grew up into Cellulogics, basically. Yeah. Um, so I'll get into Cellulogics in a moment. But So going back to the ESG thing, so the SEC said, hey, look, we're going to regulate this, and we're going to make sure that you're, that the claims that you're making to drive investor behavior are true. And there was, there's, there's, today there's no standard for ESG reporting. Um, and so there are some companies like Kimberly-Clarktake, for example, um, they have been voluntarily putting out their ESG reports for years now. And they're one of the companies that have made a lot of these claims about 2025. And, um, and by the way, a company like Kimberly Clark, they move, they consume about 5.2 billion pounds of wood pulp annually. 5.2 billion pounds. Um, and so, and, and I'll get into what, really what wood pulp is in a moment, but if they're going to replace 50% of that, you're talking about 2.6 billion pounds of an alternative resource. Yeah. That's a huge gap to fill. How would they even get the resources to fill that gap? Is there even enough resource to fill that gap? Hence the birth of Cellulogics, right? We saw this major problem here of going, these companies have all these, are making all these claims. And I'm not here to say that they don't, they aren't sincere, sincere about it. Like they very likely are, but they're, what I do know is that I, I, I went into a very deep wormhole in understanding like what fills that gap. And so far as I can tell, there's not one. So you can make all these claims that you want and you can actually mean it when you say it. But if there's not a solution for you, then you, then, then you got a problem. So, so then I started looking at, okay, what, and so if, if, if all these companies are gonna replace 50% of the wood pulp, and they're going to replace 50% of their petrochemical plastics, right? Mm-hmm. Plastic isn't going away. Plastic is amazing. Plastic has made our world 
fantastic uh, and, and convenient. But if we're going to replace petrochemical plastic, well, what do we replace that with? And so I started diving into the science of making paper and making uh, plastic and making biofuel mm -hmm. and concrete and like these these areas that are getting the most negative attention in terms of sustainability, you know, world changing, all this other stuff. So I looked at, and then I discovered that the basic building block of all these items are, are to some degree polymers. And I was like, what's the most abundant polymer in the world naturally occurring? It's cellulose. So look, and I'm going to be really honest. At the time that I discovered this, I didn't even know what cellulose really was. And so I started diving deep. So t tell me, what is cellulose? And it sounds like cellulose exists in hemp. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of cellulose in hemp, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and my understanding, based on what you just now told me, is that it sounds, uh, it sounds like cellulogics is really the, the genesis and the, and the entryway into, in your world, of how you got into the industrial materials. Because if you think about it, Imperial seedlings is imperial seedlings. You right. sold seedlings for a living, right? right. right? You, you farmed before. Mm -hmm. That's still, you know, leading up to that, you got, you got into Elevated, which it's a, you could either call it a distribution company or a right. biomass brokerage firm. Right. Whatever, however, way, however way you want to describe it, it was really Cellulogics that really kind of got you into the industrial hemp slash industrial materials game. Yes. Using cellulose, cellulose, um, I'm assuming fiber. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where you start differentiating between floral fiber and fiber fiber or um, hemp fiber. Right. right. Yeah. And um, based on my prior conversation with you is that you have the, the, the V buds and, 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 and at this point with industrial hemp, you don't really want the buds anymore. No, not at all. In fact, it's almost like a nuisance in some yeah. ways. Yeah, that's exactly right, actually. And so we, you know, and you're right. Cellulogics was, that was our final, like, we're, we're, we're officially diving in. Yeah. Like we're, we're like, nothing else matters anymore. And it really, like Cellulogics and the industrial materials piece is where our focus is. And it was, it was almost celebratory, right? And like, mm -hmm. being like, it's finally here. Yeah. Right. It was right. super exciting for all of us. Because it was a waiting game for you for a while. Right. It so. was. And so, but something that's crucially important to understand is that when we dove into this, you know, we didn't call it a hemp company and we still don't today. Right. We call it industrial materials, mm -hmm. right? We, we call ourselves a cellulose and fiber company focused on those items, but because we took our hemp hat off when we were starting cellulogics and we said, okay, hemp isn't the answer per se. It's cellulose and it's fiber. Okay? Which comes out of the hemp. Right, it does. Right. But there are a number of places you can get cellulose. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's really where we had to start. Is going, if cellulose is the answer, and, and fiber as well, but cellulose uh, with, a, with a higher intensity of focus, if that's the answer to all these things, then where do we get it from? I hope the answer is hemp. Right? But let's not be... Well, where does Cellulogics get their cellulose from? Is it entirely hemp or do you get your cellulose from other places it's or entire, other sources? It's entirely hemp. 
right? Okay. But it wasn't a myopic focus of being like, right. we've been in hemp this whole time and da da da. So we took our hat, you know, hemp hat off and we said, because you can get cellulose. Cotton has got a ton of cellulose. Okay. Um, 90%. Flax, Ramy, jute, bamboo. You can get it from all these different. All the sources are more expensive. Not necessarily more expensive, but when you look at, so you have to break it down into like the growing, first of all. So like hemp, okay, so like you got birth and death, right? So of these plants. And so hemp, while it's growing, it's a remediation plant. It actually yep. cleanses the soil. That's what the Russians and the Chinese did overseas mm. when they had high levels of um, metals and mercury yes. in their soil. They used to plant um, hemp into their soil. Yeah. And it would suck up all the mercury in, the, in, the, in different types of nasty metals. Yeah. And then, of course, the problem was that they used to take that same hemp sell it at a, at a cheap uh, amount on the open market yeah. and people were using that dirty hemp to create subsequently dirty materials that people were consuming. Of course. Yeah. So, well, you know, they did the same thing at Chernobyl, you know. Oh, did they? Yeah. With the whole radiation thing. Yeah. So I actually went out to Ukraine, Kiev, back in um, 2019, I think it was. 2019, 2020. 2020, I believe. You said Chernobyl, right? Yeah. Yeah. With the, so they, people, the, the Russians were planting hemp in the, in, in, into the ground to clean up the radiation? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Ukrainians, but yeah. Ukrainians. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I went out there specifically to meet with some groups who wanted to launch hemp programs within Ukraine because okay. they were really good at industrial hemp, right? Fibrous hemp. Um, but they didn't know much about floral hemp. And so we were going to go help them launch, uh, you know, a multi-thousand acre uh, floral hemp program. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Kiev's, by the way, a beautiful city. And Is it? Yeah. Worth, and, worth visiting? Well, probably not right now. I'd probably, <laughs> I'd probably give it some time. But <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And the Ukrainian people were fantastic. And, you know, we just had a really great time and, um, you know, went and saw a bunch of stuff. But then, you know, they showed us kind of where they had planted all this sure. hemp. Um, to clean up around Chernobyl. So uh, I don't think that they turned around and sold it to people, but um, uh, at least the, you know, they didn't for that one. But it was, it was definitely interesting. But, um, you know, it's... So, yes, it's a remediation plant. So, and it cleans up the soils. What it also does is it sequesters CO2. So mm. it sequesters about seven tons per acre of CO2 per season, so per planting, right? Um, and seven tons, when you look at the carbon market, is not a lot, right? But when you start to expand the cultivation across thousands of acres, it starts to add up significantly. And so we looked at that. We looked at um, the amount of cellulose. Uh, and by the way, not all celluloses are made the same. Not all cellulose. I would imagine because I would imagine the cellulose from, say, cotton, as you said, maybe the consistency, at least, or the, mm -hmm. or the strength of the cellulose may be different than, say, hemp or flax and so forth. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. And I'm not a scientist. So, obviously. you know what? I'm not either. But so it took me probably a lot longer to learn all this than, than, than someone who's more mm -hmm. scientifically focused. But, you know, we started diving into um, 
so cellulose content, tensile strength, which is the strength of the of it. Uh, you got um, mo uh, Young's modulus and elongation, which are basically uh, measurements of elasticity. You have the crystallinity index. You've got uh, crystallinity percentage. You've got all these characteristics, and so we built a matrix of all these plants and all these categories in the columns, and like really analyze this. Um, and at the bottom of the page, hemp came out, fortunately, the best, right? The most viable or the, the strongest? Had the best combination, combination of category, categorical, um, uh, uh, categorical uh, characteristics, right? What does that mean? So like, okay, tensile strength, the strength of it. Mm -hmm. um, it was one of the strongest. Okay. Um, when you look at elasticity, it had just the right amount, which by the way, hops is a really interesting cellulose because it's highly elastic. Um, so, but is know, it strong enough? It's not nearly as strong as hemp, but you have to look at it as a per application piece, right? right? So we don't call ourselves a hemp company because we look at, we have hemp cellulose for this application and hop cellulose for that application. And we're, we're still learning so much about sure. the cellulose of each plant that we have a long way to go. That's fascinating. So I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here is that, um, because my understanding based on our prior discussions is mm. you can put cellulose, for example, to mix in with, um, with concrete. Yeah. And it's a, it's a binding agent. Yes. Right. Cellulose is a binding agent. So if you were to put hemp cellulose into concrete as a binding agent versus say, uh, you know, flax or something else that the consistency of the concrete may be different. Absolutely. Or the viability of the concrete may be different. One may be more uh, susceptible to cracking or, or shattering versus another. Yeah, and absorption, right? Yeah. So absorption rates. If one like absorbs when, and it like contracts and retracts, and if it's, you don't want stuff changing in your concrete, really. Right. 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 So um, those are components. And then, is that the elasticity part that you're saying? No, elasticity is like the, being able to mold and move uh, without okay. breaking. Yeah. Right. You don't want your polymers to break. You know, okay. you don't want your, anyway. So, um, it's super interesting. And then also you have to look at the cellulose content relative to other things like, uh, lignin. So lignin is, so when you make paper, um, people are like, Oh, paper's made out of wood. Well, kind of right. So what they do is they take the trees, they chop them up, they chip them up put them in this big old crock pot called a digester and essentially use that to pull and they use chemicals and all kinds of stuff to pull the cellulose out, yeah. which is the target compound and then get rid of the lignin. So lignin is something that you don't want. The more lignin you have, the more processing it requires. So is it more expensive if you have a high lignin content? It is. Yeah. And it's also much more hazardous to the environment because you have to use way more chemicals. And so in paper, they use a process called craft pulping. And craft pulping is highly, like, involves a ton of chemicals and it's really bad for the environment. And it's also expensive. And so with a hemp derived cellulose or even hemp fiber, so the, you know, depending on which part of the hemp stock you're taking, but you have much less lignin. You don't need craft pulping. Um, and you know, there's some research that, you know, alludes to the fact that it's basically, it's a grossly understated, it's basically using hydrogen peroxide. And, you know, it's, 
and, and you can start getting to your core stuff. And, and you know, so they take all the cellulose and then they make wood pulp out of that, right? Yeah. And so that, and then they'll, they'll you know, they flatten it and make paper, and that's how paper is made and stuff like that. But um, so, but we can use a plant-derived cellulose. And when when we when we relate hemp in, in that specific application in paper, it in one acre of hemp, I can produce four times more cellulose than one acre of forest on average, mm -hmm. right? And I get to grow that every year. Right. A hardwood takes 10 years to grow. Softwood takes 20. Let's use the hardwood. So if you, if, if you and I are competing to sell to a, a paper mill, right? You're growing trees. I'm growing hemp. In our first year, you harvest the trees. I harvest hemp one acre. I got four times more cellulose, right? Now you're going to wait 10 more years before your next trees are ready. In that time, I've had nine more harvests. So... Four times per acre over 10 years. I'm 40 times more cellulose. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I learned that hemp grows anywhere between three to five inches a day in some circumstances or yeah. something crazy like that. It, it, it grows like a, like almost like a weed. Like a weed. Yeah. <laughs> um, Is that true? Well, so it, it really depends. It's, it's a really variable on your microclimate and your soil types, right? Okay. What's got what what you got have what you have going on? Are you dryland farming, irrigation, and like I said, in total over if you plant in end of May, early June, you're going to harvest sometime in October, right? Okay. So over those four or five months, right. and you're looking to get your plants anywhere from ten to fifteen feet tall. They're growing like bamboo, right? And that's different from the floral. The floral very, only very grows about what, six feet, or six so? feet ish, yeah, yeah right. 2,500 to 3,500 plants an acre. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's very, very different. But um, the fact that we can grow that much more cellulose. And then, you know, when you talk about bioplastics, let's cover that for a quick second. So first of all, I'll start with the problem. We like, I think what we're really talking about is basically major impact on the natural world whether it be sea, sea animals, animals, humans. Mm -hmm. um, we've all seen the turtle with the straw, and we've all seen like, the birds with the you know, coke netting around them and all that other stuff, right? So let's not try to pull at the heartstrings to make our point. You know, we, let's, let's back it up into just how we're being affected as human beings. So as human beings, we've got this major problem of sperm count fertility basically mm -hmm. so there's a really interesting study when we were talking you said you really liked joe rogan right yeah, yeah. i'm a huge joe rogan fan right and so i love his pockets love his style and i just love his approach really more than anything um because he seems very open-minded but he had a he had a guest and um i meant to catch her, her name i forgot i forgot her name but she's a researcher and a writer and she did the really interesting um, research program where she was studying the length of a man's taint. That's one heck of a <laughs> I mean, I don't know study. how that study works out. Like, okay. what was that process? Like, is it from the front? I don't know. But anyway, so <laughs> I know it's really funny research. But what she was studying was 
the direct correlation between the length of a man's taint and his sperm count and okay. fertility rates. What was that? What was the result of that? The shorter the taint, the lower the fertility. Okay. Right. Yep. Now, what's and what's add the, the the other piece of that, which is super interesting. The higher the amount of microplastics found in a man's body, the shorter the taint. So you're saying consumption of the of the uh, micro um, the the micro materials mm -hmm. can alter a man's physiological appearance. One, and then internally the internal physiology with, I guess in this case, the sperm count. Right, and the ability to reproduce. Yeah, which. It comes full circle, right? Is that putting in alternative uh, materials that's bio-based mm -hmm. in the industrial materials world has a direct impact on the public health aspect of human beings. That's right. That's exactly right. So, and so it's about being biodegradable. Plastics are degradable. They degrade down at a very slow rate. At huh? a very slow rate, right? Yeah, but they well, they they, they can degrade pretty. They can degrade rapidly, but they never biodegrade, right? So, which means that the nature has not developed microbes to biodegrade it back into the earth. So, the reason why is that when you use petrochemical plastics, it's a carbon carbon bond, right? And that carbon carbon bond is extremely strong. And we're going to get a little sciencey for a moment, right? And I'll, and I'll, I'll try not to go too deep, but so that carbon-carbon bond is extremely, extremely difficult to break. When you look at petrochemicals, oil, you look at it and say, the world has been really good, the earth is really good at absorbing things back into it, right? It never did that with oil. It collected. It's like the leftovers that it couldn't biodegrade. And so, but we're taking this thing that the world doesn't know, how, the earth does not know how to biodegrade, and we're making stuff out of it. And so with that carbon-carbon bond, you can't break it. And then if you can't break it, then the microbes, the Earth's, Earth's naturally produced microbes, cannot break it down because it can't break that bond. Now, when you look at a bio-based material, everything that's bio-based, everything that, that's made by nature has got um, a carbon-hydrogen bond, a carbon-oxygen bond, which is a weaker bond, but it allows the penetration of microbes to allow it to biodegrade it back into the earth. So a bioplastic is not a carbon-carbon bond. So it's a polymer, right? It's a long, uh, long string polymer. It's not a carbon-carbon bond. So it's a carbon hydrogen, carbon oxygen bond that allows it to be when it's within the, like if you put it on the ground, there are natural microbes that are going to Get in there and tear it apart, yep. eat it up, right? right? And scientists are trying to come up with microbes. They're trying to develop microbes right now that will eat through a carbon-carbon bond, and which is great to solve our current problem, right? From a, but from a going-forward perspective, maybe let's not put stuff out there that can't be broken down. So we're talking anywhere from a few hundred years to a thousand years to break down plastic. For you know, So it's a serious problem. Okay, so fine. If that's the problem, well, we have two solutions. It's either get rid of all things plastic, which, which we're not going to do, seems highly unlikely, yeah. or make it out of a material that can be biodegradable, right? And you have 
um, it gets absorbed back into the earth. Right. Whether it's in the marine, whether it ends up in the water, right. which obviously it's a huge problem. And, you know, people that are really hitting it hard in the plastics world would be like, you know, hey, we got the Great Pacific Patch. You ever heard of that? Yep. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the garbage patch that's out, you know, between basically California and Hawaii. Yep. And it's the size of... Uh, it's an island. It's Yeah, it's, it's, it's an I island, mean, it's, it's right? It's an island itself. Yeah, and you look at it, and it's got a ridiculous amount of, and like, the, the the plastic that they're measuring is just on the surface, right? And which is some huge number that I can't think of right now. But what's interesting is that like you've got just as much, if not more, of that plastic on the floor right there below. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. anyways, so that's a major problem. Um, and so you know, and, and the folks that are talking about that are all you know they scream about that, but I look at it like. Okay, we need to solve that problem, but how do we fix it going forward? And if petrochemical plastics are not it, and we're still going to keep plastics, then let's make it out of something different. So when I dove into plastics and discovered that cellulose is really, you have two things. You have cellulose and starch. Most bio-based plastics to date, as, as far as I can tell, are typically made out of starch because they were making them out of corn, mm -hmm. right? So corn starch or sugar cane or agave things like that, and you're, you're making out of the starch. But when you talk about that carbon-hydrogen bond and those you know, bonds between glucose, the, the starch one is, is a lot, actually a lot weaker than the, the, the bonds within cellulose. And so we can make resilient plastics out of biomaterial. And so the, the, the hard part now is... You know, so if we've got that, and then we're, you know, like you mentioned, concrete, and we've got biofuel, we can make biofuel, you know, really, uh, you know, we can make a, a cellulosic um, ethanol um, out of cellulose, obviously. And so all these things are great, right? But the problem was, how can you ever make something out of a material that's not widely available? So that was the problem that so that's the problem that we're, we're the availability of the of the source of the resources, right? And, um, and keep in mind, right? Uh, hemp's only been federally legal for not even five years, right? Which is why a lot of so, your bio-based materials are not made out of hemp, right? It's not typically found. Yeah, right. But you know, so when, when we look at this now, it's about okay. We've got to get adoption and demand. And that's one of the things that we're... So earlier you asked a question and I want to come back to it. Like you said, hey, how... You basically asked how permanent is ESG or sustainability and stuff right. like that. So the, with, with all the plastics packs we have around the world, we have the World Wildlife Fund that's doing amazing things, the Earth Defense Fund, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. All, and these organizations are global and they're big and they're moving. And then you've got... When you talk about the... Um, the plastics packs, it's called a pact for a reason. And you've got hundreds, if not thousands, of your, some of the biggest corporations in the world signing up for it. Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Johnson Controls, Kimberly-Clark that we mentioned earlier, Coca-Cola. And Petsico. they're funding this monetarily too, aren't they? They're, they're putting I mean, a lot that, of money into it. Right. That's why it's a pact. Yeah. So, yeah. so Coca-Cola, um, they were super excited about... They're a bio-based bottle that they came out with some years ago. I remember that, actually. Yeah. But the thing about it is, remember that carbon-carbon bond I was talking yep. about? You, you, if you're not 100% plant-based, 
then you and you're encapsulated in this carbon-carbon bond uh, petrochemical plastic. So they were doing, I think they were at like at like 30% bio-based, or, or I can't remember the percentage now, but if you're if, it doesn't matter if you're 70% bio-based, you're encapsulated in the petrochemical plastics of this carbon-carbon bond, and you still have that right. 500 or 1,000 year biodegradable, biodegrade That's timeline. Right. So, I mean, even though you're 70% the bio, that the existence matter. of the 30% still maintains or preserves that carbon-carbon bond that you're saying. Exactly. And yeah. so that, so then, so that's why Coca-Cola finally was, was celebrating the fact that they finally came out with a hundred percent plant-based bottle. Got it. I think they called it the plant bottle, right? And not only did they do that, but they made it open source to a ton of their competitors. And Talk said, about some ESG credits, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I don't think you've put this genie back in the bottle, but what we are going to have to do is to have a lot of these companies. The, the problem right now is pound for pound, whether it's wood pulp or petrochemical plastics, right? Or petrochemical for plastic creation, pound for pound, we're still more expensive. Now we're working on fixing that through at some very advanced processing technologies um, that get away from a lot of the old mechanica, uh, mechanical processing practices. It's kind of cool, actually. We can, uh, we can take hemp stock and turn it into a dry sanitized powder within one one-thousandth of a second. Wow, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Utilizing sound waves and resonance. But anyways, it's super kind of cool. And, and it's, also, it's technically like ultrasonication, but... Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to fix the processing so we can take some cost out of there. Um, but if I'm, you know, pound for pound, we're more expensive. So it's going to take to some degree, the companies and the corporations saying we'll, we'll pay more, right? right? What's also happening is the, the government, the USDA over the last, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's like over the last 18 months, um, has committed, has either deployed or committed to deploy 3.1 billion pounds into 141 different projects based on smart commodities. Okay. Hemp is a major piece of that. Is it? Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me uh, spin off into one last question because we're, we're running out of time okay. here. Um, is that, what do you see in, 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 in one line is the future of the industrial materials um, industry as it relates to hemp. Hemp only. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, seeing as given its versatility, I think we're working toward a totally circular economy, right? We are, hemp is a net negative carbon footprint plant. Uh, and um, so the world is working toward a net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Right. And I think that specific to hemp, I think, and, and, and really, I want to say all, you know, all bio-based, but well, you asked about hemp specifically. I think hemp gets us there a lot faster, okay. giving its versatility and ability and, you know, and application. So I think that's where we're headed. We're headed to net zero and a total circular economy and using bio-based materials. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for making the time to come on hey, this TV segment. It's good and, to see uh, you again, man. Yeah, it's always good to see you. Uh, yeah. We haven't seen each other for a while. Yeah, so. I know. We should, we should fix that. Always. Yeah. All right, man. All right, well, um, this is it. And uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. All right. All right.